Welcome to the Magnificat Podcast. We are an international ministry to Catholic women. Throughout this series, we will pray together, share insights, and hear amazing testimonies, typically from women of faith who have been touched by the power of the Lord in their lives. This is a decidedly Catholic podcast, and in this series, you will hopefully learn more about the Catholic faith, God, the Blessed Mother, and much more. Thanks so much for joining us. Now let's listen to a great program. My name is James Sagers, and my friends call me Jim or Jimmy. And it's my pleasure to introduce this series to you, Understanding Catholicism. Today, it's our great pleasure to share with you God's founding of the kingdom. So we're going to begin with the kingdom of Saul and David. We're going to go to the kingdom of Solomon and the split of the kingdom into the northern southern kingdoms, how the northern kingdom was eventually crushed by the Assyrians in 722 B.C., and eventually the southern kingdom is defeated. The temple is destroyed in 586 B.C., and then we have the Babylonian captivity. So it's an exciting period because it also looks to the coming of Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. O my divine Savior, transform me into yourself. May my hands be the hands of Jesus. May my tongue be the tongue of Jesus. Grant that every faculty of my body may serve only to glorify you. Above all, transform my soul and all its powers, that my memory, my will, and my affections may be the memory, the will, and the affections of Jesus. I pray you, destroy in me all that is not you. Grant that I may live but in you and for you, and that I may truly say with St. Paul, I live, no now, not I, but Christ lives in me. Pivotal event. And the history of Israel occurred when the elders demanded from the prophet Samuel, appoint for us a king to govern us, notice, like all the nations. And therefore, the Lord instructed Samuel, listen to the voice of the people, all that they have to say. For they have rejected, not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. God always honors the freedom he gives us, even if we choose damnation. Why is that? Love never forces. So now we come to the first king, Saul. Saul was blessed with many natural gifts that made him ideally suited for the task of ruling. However, natural gifts without God's help are never sufficient, and therefore Saul's bad moral choices eventually undermine his rule. Samuel confronted Saul with these prophetic words that are a lesson to all of God's children. Has the Lord a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Better to obey. It is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat 
of rams. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you being king. So following Saul is going to be David. The name means beloved. As Saul's successor, God chose David, who the Lord said was a man after his own heart. David was the youngest of Jesse's eight sons and the great-grandson of the marriage of Ruth and Boaz. Because he was from the tribe of Judah, he fulfilled the royal promise given to Judah by his father Jacob. After David captured Jerusalem, he made this city the capital of his kingdom. And so the prestige of bringing the sacred Ark of the Covenant into the city of Jerusalem was a vital step in solidifying the city's importance. Henceforth, David's kingdom would be linked to the city of Jerusalem, where he would reign for 33 years. As time went on, David lived in a palace in Jerusalem, while the Ark of the Covenant was housed in the tabernacle, this portable tent. Therefore, David determined to build a temple, a house for the Lord. Listen how God responded with his usual generosity. God decided through the prophet Nathan, I will raise up your offspring after you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house, meaning your dynasty, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, and your throne shall be established forever. This promise was provisionally fulfilled in Solomon, the son of David, who built the first temple in Jerusalem. However, its ultimate fulfillment is in Jesus, who built the everlasting temple of his body. So when the Jews demanded a sign that legitimized Jesus' cleansing of the temple, Jesus responded, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. St. John tells us, But he spoke of the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had spoken. There were unique characteristics in David's kingdom that are really worth looking at because we're going to see a relationship to the kingdom in the new covenant. First of all, God calls David, the Davidic heir, my son. This is the first time the Bible identified an individual person as God's son. This designation would have a special application to Jesus, the eternal son of the heavenly father. David's kingdom is also called the kingdom of the Lord, which looks to Jesus' eternal kingdom for its ultimate fulfillment. Both David and Solomon were Melchizedekian priest kings. The queen mother was the second most important person in the realm. She was called the Gibirah, the great lady. Solomon's mother Bathsheba set the pattern for the important role of the queen mother, the great lady in the Davidic kingdom. She sat on a throne and the kings at the king's right hand and advised her son. She was the king's trusted advisor and the advocate of the people. 
as a queen mother of the kingdom, Bathsheba was a type of Mary, the queen mother of Jesus' kingdom and the great intercessor. The prime minister played an important role in David's kingdom. Each Davidic king appointed a prime minister who was the head of all the other royal ministers. He operated with the complete authority of the king himself. The sign of this office was the key of the house of David. We will see this later when this office was fulfilled in Jesus' kingdom by Peter and his successors. The thanksgiving sacrifice, called in Hebrew the Todah, the Todah expressed profound gratitude for God's deliverance from death or some other great ordeal. It was the only sacrifice that used unleavened bread. The sacrificial animal represented the person offering the sacrifice. And so the English word Eucharist comes from the Greek translation of the Hebrew word todah, thanksgiving. David then prefigures Jesus in a number of important ways. First, both David and Jesus were anointed king-priests. Secondly, both suffered persecution from their brethren. Three, both were identified as a son of God. Four, David united the tribes and ruled over them. Jesus established his rule over the whole of God's broken and scattered family. David was 30 at the time of his anointing. Jesus was 30 when he was baptized by John and anointed by the Holy Spirit. God forgave the sins of David's family because of David's fidelity. All sins are forgiven because of Jesus' unique sacrifice. The everlasting kingdom of God promised David is perfectly fulfilled in Jesus' kingdom, the church, which will last forever. Unfortunately, in spite of his initial holiness, David sins. David committed adultery with Bathsheba, then arranged the murder of her husband Uriah in an attempt to hide his guilt and sin. When confronted by the prophet Nathan, David acknowledged his sin, repented, and the guilt of the sin was forgiven. This is one of the great dramatic scenes in the Bible. But David still had to pay a temple price for his sin. Thus Nathan declared, The sword shall never depart from your house, meaning your dynasty. David's beautiful repentance, which is highlighted in Psalm 51, is part of every Mass where it is recited to remind us and the priests that he too is a sinner in need of God's mercy. We should pray for our priests because holy priests develop holy parishioners. Solomon followed David, and what followed Solomon was division and exile. Let's begin by looking at Solomon's reign. It began on a high note. We're told Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. However, Solomon's rule ended badly. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart 
of David, his father. Nevertheless, God did not rip away the kingdom from Solomon because of David's faithfulness. Solomon breaks the laws given to kings in Deuteronomy chapter 17. They were forbidden to multiply horses, meaning to build a large standing army. Hmm, how did he do? Well, he had 40,000 stables, 12,000 horsemen, 1,400 chariots. Kind of blew that one. Secondly, he was not to multiply wives for himself. Well, Solomon acquired 700 wives and 300 concubines. In one of my classes, a young boy said, called it 300 porcupines. The king was forbidden to greatly multiply for himself silver and gold. In one year, Solomon acquired 666, 666 talents of gold. This number only appears in one other place in the whole Bible, where in the book of Revelation, it is the mark of the beast Antichrist and is a superlative symbol of imperfection. Initially, St. John used this number, 666, as a code for the evil emperor Nero, whose name translated from Greek into Hebrew adds up to 666. However, this number also looks to all the beast antichrist down through history until we come to the final time of the antichrist. The tragedy of King Solomon is that he began his rule as a type of Jesus, the son of David, and ended his reign as a type of the Antichrist. This brings to mind an important saying, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. In reflecting on what happened to Solomon, we need to say to ourselves, there but for the grace of God, go I. Lurking in the background of Solomon's kingdom was a simmering discontent among the northern tribes because of Solomon's punitive taxes and work requirements that were needed to build the king's grand edifices. And so what happens is the kingdom is going to divide. After Solomon's death, his arrogant and immature son, Rehoboam, refused to reduce the burden of taxes and forced labor imposed on the northern ten tribes by his father. As a result, they rebelled and formed a larger kingdom of Israel under Jeroboam. The remaining two tribes of Judah and Benjamin formed the smaller kingdom of Judah under Rehoboam. So what happened in the northern kingdom? Jeroboam created a false religion by erecting a golden calf, the result of which was disastrous. In Psalm 127, the psalmist wrote, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. The end of the kingdom came when the mighty Assyrian Empire crushed the northern tribes in 722 B.C., and scattered most of them in the northernmost part of their vast empire. The Assyrians then resettled in the vacant territory of the northern tribes. Five Gentile tribes 
who came with their pagan deities. The Samaritans were the offspring of the intermarriages between the remnant of the northern tribes not taken into exile and the five pagan tribes that the Assyrians resettled in their land. From this point forward, the northern tribes were known as the Ten Lost Tribes. The southern kingdom of Judah and the Babylonian exile is the point we need to focus on next. Eventually, the kingdom of Judah was reduced to vassalage under Egypt. When the Babylonians defeated the Egyptians, Judah became a vassal to Babylon. But eventually, the puppet king, Zedekiah, was put on the throne. His reckless revolt was crushed ten years later when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the city of Jerusalem and its temple after an 18-month siege. Before the city fell, the prophet Jeremiah hid the Ark of the Covenant. After the capture of the city, the Babylonians slew the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and then put out the eyes of Zedekiah, bound him in fetters, and took him into Babylon, never to be heard of again. The result of sin. So the kingdom of David was hacked down. It ceased to exist. The Babylonian exile had begun. The prophet Jeremiah, who predicted the fall of Jerusalem, was forced to settle in Egypt, where he prophesied the fall of Egypt and Babylon. It was believed that he was stoned to death in Egypt by his countrymen. What followed the exile and the destruction of the kingdoms was the longing for the messianic restoration and the foreshadowing of Jesus. We can begin then with the virgin birth. Isaiah, addressing King Ahaz, said, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, because a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, in Hebrew, God with us. Wow. One of the titles that is used throughout the New Testament to identify the future Messiah is the expression, the Son of Man. Originally, this is an idiomatic expression indicated a human person, a man. Except in one passage, in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where we read, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Jesus identified himself with this expression, the Son of Man, of Daniel's vision in his trial before the Sanhedrin. Caiaphas demanded, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Listen to Jesus' response. You have said so, but I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. The terms shoot and branch were also used to identify the future Messiah. Isaiah spoke of the shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was David's father. Other prophets spoke of the branch or the righteous branch 
It is significant that Jesus grew up in Nazareth, which is branch town from the Hebrew word Nazir. So Jesus declared in the book of Revelation, I am the root and the offspring of David. The prophet Isaiah identified a chief characteristic of the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord rests upon him. Clearly, this applies to Jesus. As he, Jesus, was coming up from the water from his baptism by John, immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And behold, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son. The Messiah was also seen as the heavenly or divine shepherd. We see this in many biblical passages. In the Old Testament, God is depicted as the divine shepherd. In Psalm 23, for example, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Condemning Israel's false shepherds, Jesus said, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. So Jesus tells us in John's Gospel, I am the good shepherd. And Jesus laments over Jerusalem. Oh, we can hear his heart breaking. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often when I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Oh, let us pray. Jesus never says that of us. The prophets also predict that the Messiah will build the Lord's temple. In Zechariah, we read, His name is Branch, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Of course, that's the temple of his body. What sign have you to show us for doing this cleansing of the temple? Jesus is challenged. Jesus replied, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He spoke to them about the temple of his body. The Messiah would also be the suffering servant who would bring just to Israel and the Gentiles. St. Paul informs us that Jesus took the form of a servant. We see this image carried over in the prophet Isaiah, in Psalms, in Zechariah, and Amos. So the Messiah, we are told, would be a prophet like Moses. Moses predicted that God would send another prophet like him. He would lead then to a new and much greater exodus. Moses' mediation rained down manna to feed the people of God in the wilderness. And so Jesus, the new Moses, would rain down a new manna from heaven, which is his sacred body and blood, soul and divinity, which endures, Jesus says, to eternal life. And so just as Moses set up a hierarchical structure with Aaron as the high priest and Abihu and uh, Nadav with him as the three leaders and the 70 elders, so Jesus established Peter as his high priest with James and John as the three leaders, 
along with 12 apostles representing the tribes of Israel, the new Israel, and the 70 disciples. So the Messiah will be the divine husband. In the Old Testament, God is depicted as a heavenly husband. And so Jeremiah proclaims, In desolate Jerusalem, there shall be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. In the book of Hosea, the prophet said, God speaking, I will allure her. And in that day, says the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal, my Baal. I will espouse you forever and ever. The prophet Isaiah. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. And then in the New Testament, Jesus is identified as a heavenly husband. For example, John the Baptist says, He who has the bride, that's Jesus, is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, which is John himself, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. And therefore this joy of mine is now full. And then he adds these wonderful words, He must increase, but I must decrease. So the disciples of the Pharisees, the disciples of John the Baptist, they're fasting. Jesus said, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Of course, that's his passion. And then they will fast in that day. The depiction of heaven in the book of Revelation is incredible. It's the marriage of the Lamb and the marriage supper of the Lamb. So the Messiah will bring about a new covenant. This is a promise that God gave to Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, and I show myself their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. Oh, this is so incredible. I will put my law within them, and I will write it upon their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Jesus fulfills this promise of the new covenant. He said, This chalice, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. This chalice is the new covenant in my blood. 1 Corinthians. The rejection of God is depicted in sacred scripture as spiritual adultery. The prophetic books provide a unique insight into how the unfaithfulness of the Hebrew people was understood from the perspective of the covenant. They understood that the covenant was a spiritual marriage with the Lord. Consequently, sins are viewed as spiritual adultery. And so Jeremiah wrote, Can a maiden forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me, 
days without number. And then later he wrote, But she too, that is the king of Judah, went and prayed the harlot, committing spiritual adultery with stone and tree, idol worship. Surely, as a faithless wife leaves her husband, so have you been faithless to me, O house of Israel. The prophet Ezekiel wrote, But you trusted in your beauty and played the harlot, and you took your sons and your daughters, whom you had borne to me, and these you scattered to them to be devoured. Were your harlotry so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offspring by fire to them? Oh, I think of abortion when I read this. And in all your abominations and your harlotries, you did not remember the days of your youth. The book of Hosea, he writes, Go, take for yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry. For the land commits great harlotry by forsaking the Lord. Gomer, his wife, is going to be a depiction of Israel, and Hosea, a depiction of God. Book of Isaiah, we read How the faithful city, Jerusalem, has become a harlot. She that was full of justice, righteousness longed in her, but now murderers. After going through these passages, what can we say in reflection? Two events in particular stand out in the history of the kingdom. The first is the frequent rejection of God and the spiritual damage it causes God's people, even at a human level. This tragedy is prophetically captured in the book of Hosea when the people's infidelity to God is portrayed in the adultery of Hosea's unfaithful wife, Gomer. It is a painful allegory of God's broken covenantal relationship with his chosen people. The second event that jumps out at me is God's amazing mercy, which is a frequent biblical theme. The focus of the book of Jonah, for example, teaches that God's mercy extends to all peoples when they repent, even the hated inhabitants of Nineveh. This is why Jonah tried to escape his prophetic calling. He wanted to see them punished, destroyed. It is also the reason he was angry and complained to God. I knew that you were gracious God, he lamented and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in mercy. God's mercy was also a frequent theme in the Psalms. For example, Psalm 86, which is attributed to David, affirmed, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in mercy and faithfulness. And therefore David and those pray with him when we recite this psalm, can have the courage to pray, turn to me and take pity on me. Lord, give me your strength. Give it to your servant and save the son of your handmaid. There is no sin or accumulation of sins that God will not forgive if, if 
He is approached in humility and repentance. Prominent examples of God's mercy abound in the New Testament. Let's consider just three. Mary Magdalene, from whom Jesus removed seven demons, which indicated her wedded relationship with the devil. We learn later that she stood with the Blessed Mother and Holy Women at the foot of the cross and was given the privilege to be the first recorded eyewitness of Jesus' resurrection. There is a tradition that the Apostle John chose Mary Magdalene to be the companion of the Blessed Mother after Jesus ascended to the Father because she was the most chaste of all the holy women. Peter not only denied Jesus three times, but he sealed his treachery with an oath, a curse. Jesus publicly forgave Peter after the resurrection at the Tiberius. He said to Peter, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Then Jesus added, follow me. When he was condemned to death in Nero's persecution, Peter asked to be crucified upside down because he was not worthy to die like his beloved Lord and Savior. Paul was the proud Pharisee who took the responsibility for Stephen's martyrdom. He's the one who began the first persecution of the church. And therefore, Paul wrote of himself, For I am the least of the apostles, because I persecuted the church of God. Yet, by God's grace, he became the great apostle to the Gentiles. God's love and mercy has no limits. So let us say the beautiful Lord's Prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to this Magnificat podcast. Have you been touched by our time together? If so, for more information or to find a Magnificat chapter near you, go to our website at magnificat-ministry.org or visit us on social media. We would love to hear from you. You can also email us at magnificatcst at aol.com or call 504-828-MARY, M-A-R-Y. Until the next time, may God bless you.